Well, good morning, everybody. Before we get started, I want to make sure Tracy has his Bible, because you're going to need that, I promise. Second thing I want to do is uh, we want to keep celebrating this morning just a little bit longer, um, because Austin and Megan Dean, who are children of Tim and Sue Dean back here, are expecting their first little one. I don't think we know boy or girl yet. We do know the little ones due in February, and so far, mom and baby are healthy, um, and Austin's freaking out, so everything's going according to plan. Um, <laughs> um, we're also celebrating with, you know, the Brackets and the Deans and, you know, the whole web of family who are all celebrating, but certainly with uh, Tim and Sue this morning. Congratulations. It's a wonderful thing. I hear being a grandparent, uh, being a a father is the best experience of my life. Don't ask me last night at about 11, 12 o'clock in the morning whenever Arlo was waking us up. I didn't think it was the best thing in the world. But this morning, looking at him in his little blue hoodie, it's again the best thing in the world. So it just, it's a roller coaster of emotions. Uh, we are on a summer road trip. If you've been with us this summer, um, we have been discovering things that God has to teach us on the roads in your Bible. And there are a bunch of roads. I'll be honest, a lot more roads than I thought there were whenever we first started this series. Um, and it's just amazing all of the things that we have to learn on them. And I don't think this morning that trend's going to let up at all. So let's hope not. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. You can begin turning your Bibles there. You can begin clicking your phones over there while you do it. Let me tell you that Matthew 21 is actually the end of Jesus' road trip. So it's a road trip that he began all the way back in Matthew 16. A few weeks ago, we, we talked about that, uh, where Jesus, he brings his disciples together, and he says, all right, guys, here's the deal. We got to go to Jerusalem. And the reason we need to go to Jerusalem is because I need to be arrested, I need to be beaten and tortured, put on a cross, killed, buried, so I can rise again. And they're just like, is this a metaphor? Like, it just whoo, right over their heads, as it would for many of us if someone told us the news that why they need to go to the city. So they began that in Matthew 16, and now in Matthew 21, Jesus is going to reach his destination of Jerusalem, and he's going to come riding in on a donkey. So I want to put up here an image while we read Matthew 21. So this is Jerusalem. Um, this is the view Jesus a similar view that Jesus would have had riding into Jerusalem from um, a point of view called the Mount of Olives. Now, this is a more modern picture, but I'll point out a couple of things just to kind of situate yourself here. So that horizontal wall about the middle of the screen, uh, that wall right there is a mere 600 years old, so <laughs> not that old, but uh, it is not the original wall, but the original one would have stood exactly where that one is. So it would have looked about the same. The gold dome there is actually a Muslim mosque now, but it stands where Jesus, the temple in Jesus' time would have stood. Now, Jesus' temple, Jesus' temple, the temple, would have been far more grandeur and larger um, than that one, but it gives you an idea. And we are standing, from Jesus' point of view, we are standing on the Mount of Olives, which you're familiar with your Bible. You have heard about the Mount of Olives. There's a couple of olive trees scattered throughout there. There are these thick, twisted trees that overhang, and there would have been an orchard on this mountainside. And then to get to Jerusalem, it's hard in pictures to get kind of what, it, what the landscape looks like, but you actually have to go down a very, very steep ravine. 
I mean like almost sliding down a hill to get to the bottom of the pit only to make your way back up to Jerusalem. So this is Jesus' road. This is the road run right here as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It's the same path that David went on whenever he is returning from exile from his son. He's returning back to Jerusalem. He would have gone on this same exact path. So it's a very well-known, well-tread path that Jesus is on. And now let's dive into Matthew 21. So here's what I want to do with you this morning. We're going to spend the first part of this just spending our time in the text familiarizing ourselves with the scene. So I'm going to read through Matthew, the beginning of Matthew 21, this entry into Jerusalem, and I'm going to stop little pit stops along the way, give you some commentary to set the context a little bit. Sound good? Sound good for everybody? Okay. If you said no, I don't know what to tell you. All right, Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem, there we have it right here, as they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage. Bethphage, Bethphage. You can say it all kinds of way with an Italian accent and it sounds cooler. All it simply means is the place of the fig. Beth is place, fig, phage, phage is fig. Place of the fig. So they came to the place of the fig on the Mount of Olives. Scene set. Okay. Now Jesus sent two disciples. All right, pause right there already. So something pretty extraordinary is about to happen, and I love this about the text, is that we don't read it this way. Matthew, the author of this telling, is about to set the scene like a modern-day spy movie. And I'm not kidding. It's like a James Bond movie that we're about to enter. And Jesus, he is entering into this mode that we've never seen in Jesus at this point in the story. So scholars like to call Jesus... Jesus' kind of posture before this moment, they call it the messianic secret. And all that means is people were claiming Jesus' messiahship, that he was the savior, and he was trying to keep that a secret, right? So anytime he did something amazing, shh, don't tell anybody. Anytime somebody proclaimed, you must be the messiah, shh, don't tell anybody. My time hasn't yet come until this point, Matthew 21. The time has now come. So it's a turning of Jesus right here. And Jesus is about to get extremely calculated and focused. At this point in the story, Matthew 21, we're only a week away from when Jesus will die. One week for the rest of Matthew. And Jesus knows exactly where he's headed, and he's putting things in place to get him there. So Jesus sent two of his disciples, and I want you to put yourself in a modern-day spy movie, and he says to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and at once you're going to find a donkey tied up there and a little donkey, baby donkey, next to her. I mean, look at it. It is a spy movie. That's what's happening here. It's like, you know, I just recently watched uh, some of the older Bond movies, right? And it, this is all it reminds me of. It's like, all right, Bonds, you're going to land in Istanbul. You're going to go to the main square. You're going to find a hot rod car that's not going to last to the end of the movie. You're going to completely destroy it. Go in, open the door, get the keys out of the visor, put in your code, and go get the bad guys. Here we go. You're laughing. It's a terrible accent, I know, but it's the best I can do, all right? It's the best I can do. But that's what's happened. It's like, gee, go to the city. There's gonna, I put in place a donkey and a baby, and you're going to take it and bring it back to me. Okay? So, uh, verse 3, as if it's going to get any crazier, if anybody says, it's still Jesus talking to his two little spies here, if anybody says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them 
and he will send them right away. So not only do we have vehicles set up, but now we have passcodes to get to the vehicle. I mean, just play out this scene just a little bit, just one step in your head. The disciples walk into the city. Oh, look, there's a donkey. There's a baby donkey. That must be ours. They untie it, and they start walking away. Hey, 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 that's my donkey, sir. <laughs> like, it, you're stealing, clearly. Like, thief, who are you? Uh, the Lord needs them. Ah, got it. Got Okay, go, everything's cool. Everything's cool. Go ahead, sir. Take the donkey. We're good. That's what's happening. That's what's in this scene. Okay, now Matthew is then going to take a step back, and he's going to whisper in your ear as a reader. He's saying, everything that I've just said, this strange little scene with the donkey and the passcode, all of it, verse 4, is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Which prophet? Zechariah. Now, you, don't, you need footnotes to be like, oh, what prophet? Zachariah? Okay, Zechariah. People reading this for the first time, they didn't need that footnote. Why? Because they've been raised in this scripture over and over. This is their entertainment. This is how they structure society. This is how they worship God, is they have immersed themselves in the scripture. So they just need to say the prophet, and their minds go straight to Zechariah. We go down to the bottom of our Bible and get a footnote. And here's what that prophet says, the fulfilling of this little scene. Verse 5, say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. Mic drop. Your king. What does a king look like? Well, what are the people wanting? Their expectation. They're wanting Moses, right? I mean, we're in exile. The Romans are destroying us and oppressing us like the Egyptians were to our ancestors. So what are we expecting? We want, we want a Moses to, to stride in here to tell the Roman government what's up so that we can just walk our way out or better yet, kick them out. It's our land anyways. It's our promised land that was given to us. Okay, so we have a king. He's coming to us. But there's this little part at the end of that verse that I just never could quite get as an ancient reader. How is this king going to come? Gentle and riding on a donkey. Strange, not what a king looks like and a baby next to it, as if that clears it up right away. All right, so that's the fulfilling. That's what we're fulfilling here. Verse 6, back to the story, Matthew says. Now the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. If you want to underline, highlight, and bold in any verse in this little story, it's that one right there. Disciples have, they have no idea. Let's be honest. They, they are like we are many times in our faith. They have no idea what Jesus' plans are here, how he's going to work out those plans, what exactly he's doing at any moment. They have no idea, but what do they do? They love and they trust Jesus, and that's good enough for them. They don't need all the answers. They don't need the, the end plans. They don't need the schematics of how we're going to get there. They just love and trust Jesus, and that's enough. You can take something from that. I, I know it. Verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Probably one of my favorite verses um, in my Bible, and I'll tell you why. It recently became a favorite just in studying it because I was thinking about who are the people giving their coats. They're the first, they're the people who follow Jesus down from Jerusalem. They're his followers, the ones that Jesus has already told earlier in the story. He's told him, hey, you may have to leave your family. In fact, you may have to get to a point where you hate your family to come follow me. 
You have to give up everything that you have to leave it behind, to trust me solely, to come follow me. You have to leave your comfort. You have to leave your knowing. You have to leave your wealth. Whatever it is, your occupation, you have to leave all of it and come follow me. And these people have done it. Like all, they've given everything to following Jesus except literally the coats on their back. And now they're willing to give even that. This donkey comes riding in and they're like, I don't know what, you know what, Jesus, you can have this too. Everything that I have, it's now yours, Jesus. So they put the coats on the donkey, verse eight, a very large crowd. Now this pin that up real quick, a very large crowd. We're going to be talking about two crowds this morning. This is crowd number one. These are the people who are giving the coats off their back, the ones who have come from Galilee with Jesus down to Jerusalem. They're the ones who have left everything to follow him. This is that crowd. And they're like watching the disciples put the coats on the donkey, and they're like, okay, well, what do we do with ours? We'll just throw it on the ground. Like, let, let the donkey step on it. Do a little, like, impromptu red carpet for Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. So they began throwing their cloaks on the ground. Maybe they ran out of coats, and they began, look, verse 8, cutting branches from trees and spreading those on the road. It's called a royal palm for a reason. Palm leaves is what they were cutting. It's a sign of royalty, and they were laying those down because Jesus is our king. And then verse 9, the crowds, this is crowd number one still, The crowds then went ahead of Jesus, and those that follow shouted. So now they're proclaiming out loud, who is this Jesus? Hosanna, which I don't know why we don't translate that, because Hosanna might not mean anything to you, but its translation does. It means save us. Save us, son of David. Kingship. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Messiah. Save us in the highest heaven, divinity. And then the table turns. Last two verses here. Verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he, now he's gone through the ravine, procession, people chanting, coats everywhere, palm trees everywhere. They're shouting about who he is. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and the text says the whole city was stirred. I don't know what your translation is. That one is terrible. It just, it doesn't capture what's happening here. The best way I could capture it for you is through sports. If you're not into sports, I'm sorry. you'll, You'll probably still get it. I want you to imagine your favorite team, favorite sports team that you enjoy watching. I want you to imagine you're at your home court, home stadium, home ballpark, and it's the final game of the, fi- the playoffs. I mean, you, this is it, right? You're going against your arch rivals. Last swing, last hit, last shot, anything, and the ref, the umpire, makes a terrible call. I mean, ju- I mean, everybody, opposing team, your team, everybody knows it was a terrible call, and it cost your team the game, and the stadium was stirred. Okay, you get it, right? (laughs) Stir doesn't quite capture it. The whole city was stirred. And they're asking, who is this guy? Who's this guy? You said his name's Jesus? Who's this guy? And the crowd answers. Notice, crowd number one answers crowd number two. Crowd number one is taking their coats off their back, giving it to Jesus. Crowd number two lives in that building right there. Well, not that building, but that, that city right there. Crowd number two, who's this guy? Crowd number one, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. 
Insane. Insane. That's our text this morning. That's our road. So there's two primary things I want to do with you this morning. So we continue in this. Two things. Number one, I want to reveal to you, to us, something about your Bible. So we believe in the authority of this text. We believe it has life and truth. It has something to speak to this world even today. That it is my anchor when the the chaos of the world rages around me. But at the same time, we also recognize that this book was written by people who lived 2,000 plus years ago on literally the other side of the world. And so to appropriately apply it to my life, I need to understand it within its world and its life. So that's what we do here. Tracy does it way better than I do, but I will scratch the surface with just this one story here this morning. So we're going to reveal something to you about your Bible, and then the second thing I want to do is reveal something about you, about us. Okay, two things this morning. So let's start with the first one. As modern readers, I'm just going to go ahead and put this this up here for us. So as modern readers of the New Testament, we often know very little of the geopolitical world of the first century Palestine. We know very little about these places and the people that live with them at the time that Jesus was alive. You know, it's commonly assumed that the Jews, which are all main characters in the Bible, the main heritage, Jesus was a Jew, crowd number one, the disciples were Jews, the the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees in Jerusalem, they were Jews, that the Jews who lived in this area, it's commonly assumed that they were an undifferentiated community living amicably together in this part of the world we call it the Holy Lands. To explain what I just said, it would be like if we went 2,000 years in the future from today, and we're talking about 2020, 2021, and we said, yeah, Americans in 2020, they were all alike. They all looked the same, acted the same. Yeah, they all wanted, they all had the same idea with COVID about how it should be eradicated, how we should respond to it. There were no differences between them. Okay, you get like, obviously, there are some differences even within a group of people. And the same is true for those living in this part of the world where Jesus lived. They weren't just unified under their resentment of the political opposition of Rome. They had their own life, their own culture, their own language even. Here, let me give you a couple of examples, a couple of the key differences between these two regions. So before I go there, let me say, we're talking about two regions here. We're talking about Galilee up here in the north. This is where Jesus was uh, raised. You see Nazareth right there, Sea of Galilee, where, you know, he did a lot of really cool things on the Sea of Galilee. You have the Jordan River that comes all the way down, and then you have the Dead Sea. So we're talking about Galilee in the north, and we're talking about Judea in the south. Judea right here is where the Jerusalem, the picture I just showed you, it's right here. So Jesus did a lot of his ministry up here, Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, Jerusalem, this is where Jesus will be crucified, buried, and rise again. So we're talking about these two regions, Galilee and Judea, and I'm going to highlight some of the differences between the two. One major difference is they were racially different. The northern region of Galilee was surrounded. Its proximity to pagan cities was a lot closer than Judea. And so they would go over there, have children. They would come inside Galilee, have children, mixed population. So just walking into the city of Jerusalem, you could point people out immediately from their difference. Oh, you're not from here. You must be from the north. 
Geographically, obviously, they were in two different regions, one in the north, one in the south, but there's a strip of land, this blue thing, called Samaria, right smack in the middle of them. In fact, people would often go out of their way to get to, uh, to, get to the southern or get to the northern to avoid Samaria. Why? Because it's filled with Samaritans, and their words, not mine, Samaritans were half-breeds, scum of the earth, the worst kind of people. That's why Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 is so provocative. Not only is she a woman, not only is she sleeping and with multiple men that are not her husband, but she's a Samaritan. She lives right there, and we don't like Samaritans. So geographically, there was a difference. Politically, there was a difference. Southern area of Judea was primarily run by the Romans. The Galileans in the north had a different administration. Economically, they were different. Galilee had the Sea of Galilee, agriculture, fishing, a lot of resources. And the wealth generated in the northern region created envy for people who lived in the south. Culturally, they were different. Yes, even culturally. Judeans in the south, they despised their northern neighbors. They considered them like country cousins. They, weren't, they didn't have the Jewish sophistication that they did in the south. Two more. Linguistically, even the way they spoke. In the north, they had a very distinct form of Aramaic. Jesus had an accent, right? So whenever he walked into the southern city of Jerusalem, right away when he was speaking, they could tell, you're not from here. And often the, the Galilean, the, the dialect they used was the butt of humor for many people who lived in the south. They would make fun of their accent. And then last one, religiously. Yes, even religiously. The southern region of Judea, their opinion was the Galileans in the north were lax in their observance of God. And I mean, it's hard to blame them. Look how far they had to go just to get to the temple. <laughs> Proximity made a difference. So here's my hope in building out this caricature, right? Is to help us realize that even in impeccably Jewish Galilean from the north, like Jesus, impeccably Jewish, but he's from the north, was not among his own people when he walked into the southern city of Jerusalem. And recognizing the realities of the situation is to gain new insight into the obstacles that Jesus of Nazareth faced of getting acceptance as a credible Messiah in the city of Jerusalem. Who is this guy? He doesn't look like us, doesn't talk like us, doesn't act like us. He's not from the same place we are. This is not our Savior. Jesus' arrival in the city, it caused a commotion and for good reason, reason, right? I mean, this little demonstration with the donkey and the coats and the palm leaves, it's clear Jesus is making some sort of royal claim, some sort of divine claim, and he's a stranger to people who lived in the South. We don't know this guy. We don't know him from Adam. And he's from the North. He's not our king. And Jesus' ride into the city it had a two-front threat, one to the Romans because he's claiming to be a king. And hey, we're Romans, we already have a king. This is why when Jesus is nailed to the cross and they put a plaque that says, the king of the Jews, it's them showing, yeah, our king kills your king. And the second threat was a religious threat. The people who lived in Jerusalem, I mean, we're the Jewish, sophist we're the sophisticated ones. We're the ones who are very strict in our, you're from the north. And now you're claiming to be here and be the Messiah? No, I don't think so. And the skeptical crowd, crowd number two, the crowd that lives in Jerusalem, the skeptical crowd's reaction, it's just human nature. 
I mean, it's really hard to blame them because when something happens that's not like it's always been done or not like you're expecting it to be done, it's downright suspicious. It's unfamiliar. Eventually, it'll get to the place where it's just not good enough. It's not good enough, which is going to hinge us to why this matters today, what we can learn and learning something about ourselves, the second part. So there's learning something about our Bible. Did you get it? Did you lock it in? All right. Now let's learn something about us because the, the skeptical crowd's reaction, crowd number two, is the same, the same principles are true in our life of how we react to our expectations. Your reality will never be good enough because you're constantly comparing it to your expectations. Let me say it again. Your reality for you is never going to feel good enough because you're constantly comparing it to an expectation that you hold. It's why those reality versus expectation pictures are so funny and dramatic, right? Let me show you an example. So this is, this is a cheeseburger. <laughs> this is a, I think it's a Big Mac. You know what it looks like? It looks like Casey's burger to me, and I love Casey's burger. If someone handed me that burger, I would be ecstatic, especially right now because I'm starving. I mean, that's a good look. I mean, could it be better? Yes. But I get that burger nearly every day. I know. I get that burger nearly every day, and I'm completely content whenever I open it up. But whenever you put it side by side to that, now, now it kind of looks disgusting. <laughs> it's like, mm, you're right. I don't think I want that burger anymore. I'd rather, who, which one would you rather? Top one or bottom one? Top one or bottom one? Top one, right? I mean, yeah, because you're stitching it right next to, to perfection. All of a sudden, the bottom one is just simply not good enough because you're stitching it by seemingly perfection. And your life, your life wouldn't seem all that bad. It wouldn't be all that bad if you stop comparing it to other people's. See, the person, like a comparison, the person who can always whip up the perfect meal, do you compare yourself to that person? You know, I, whenever it's my turn to cook, I always find myself, I go into the kitchen, and I'll go in there, and there'll be like saltine crackers, pickles, and mayonnaise. That's like all we have in the fridge. I'm like, okay, we're having a poor man's Lunchable. Here we go. This is what we're having. My wife goes in right behind me, same ingredients, makes a five-course meal. I don't know where she gets her magic from. I don't know what, but she has a gift from the Spirit, and I'm paying for it, and it's a wonderful thing. Do you find yourself comparing? How about the, kid, the family who has five kids? You walk into their house, it's pristine. It's like clean, everything's put up. You're like, are you sure you live here? Kids, are you okay? Is everybody good? How about this one? Um, the guy who actually lost weight over COVID. <laughs> you find yourself, we all know in this room who it is. Where is he? We all know who it is, Troy. <laughs> but that guy is like, yeah, I was going to go for just a six pack, but there's just two more right there. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> or how about the spiritual warrior who reads through their Bible five times a year? You're like, I'm just trying to sit and read my Bible for five minutes. And you have a person reading it five times a year. You owe it to yourself to stop comparing your life, your reality, to the people who live in your neighborhood, to the people you follow on social media, to the people you work in the same office with. Here's why. Because you never win when you compare. Nobody wins when you compare. You know what comparison does is it separates you from God's truth. 
You know what, you know what comparison is doing for some of y'all's lives? Comparison is keeping some of you from loving your body. You see all these people who are losing weight, all these people who are holding on to diets, these people on social media, and you look in the mirror and you say, no one will call me beautiful. You know what comparison is doing in some of your life is it's keeping you working longer hours and pulling you away from what really matters. You see people making six figures. You see the guy in your office who got a promotion. And you tell your spouse, honey, it's just a little bit longer. If I just work a little bit more, put in a little more time, just think about where we will be. And you're so focused on where you could be, you forget what you have right now. You know what comparison is doing in some of our lives is it's keeping us from pursuing Jesus with all of our heart. We're so focused on where everybody else is or what they're not doing outside that we forget that we're on our own journey, that we have our own things we got to work through, that Jesus needs to transform our heart too. I'm going to tie this back into Matthew 21, but first, two-step process. We fall, we fall into this comparison trap, and I want to give you a two-step, easy two-step process to pull ourselves out of it. Because a crowd living in Jerusalem, crowd number two, they had an expectation about what the Messiah should look like, about what the king should do, about what the Savior would do and look like. And when the reality of Jesus came riding in on a donkey, they missed it. They missed it entirely. So the same question goes to you. Within your own comparisons, what are you missing? What are you missing? So two steps. Number one, drop the expectation. Drop the expectation. Stop comparing your beginning to somebody else's middle. You're beginning a journey in your faith. You're beginning a journey in your physicality. You're beginning a journey in your job, in your career, in your future, in your family life. Whatever journey you decide to start... Stop comparing your beginning to where somebody else has already been. They've already gone on the journey before you. Don't compare yourself to their middle. Mute the noise of comparison. Some of you are like, well, I just I have all this in front of me so I can be inspired to be better, and that's great. I have nothing against inspiration as long as you can differentiate the difference between comparison and inspiration. Inspiration says there's still time. Inspiration says I can be good enough. I am good enough. I will get there. Comparison says you're out of time. You'll never be good enough. You'll never get there. And mute the noise of comparison in your life. Stop following people who are making you feel worse. If you walk away from something feeling worse about yourself, walk away. Because that's not who God says you are. Which goes to number two, accept reality. Drop the expectation, accept the reality. You want to know the reality of things about what God says about you? God says you are loved. You are loved. God says you are his. You've been adopted into the family. Do you, do you deserve it? No. But you're part of the family. God says you are worthy. How many of you need to hear that? That you are worthy. God says you have a purpose. Accept reality is knowing who God says that you are and understanding that reality is hard. It might be hard to admit, it might be hard for some of you to admit that you have a drinking problem. That might be hard to admit for some of you. It might be hard to admit that your marriage is in shambles and you need to do something about it. 
it might be hard to admit that you're holding a grudge against somebody. That it's now on you, no longer them. It might be hard to admit that you were wrong in that recent fight, that recent argument, that you're the one who's at fault. It might be hard to admit that you're sinking into depression and that you need help. It might be hard to admit that you're not actually right with God. Your relationship with Him is not where it should be. Reality is hard. But instead of being blinded by expectation, I want you to hear these words. God can help you make a change if you will stop depending on yourself and you'll stop depending on a comparison and you start depending solely on Him. God can make a change. God is all-powerful. He's infinitely loving. He's perfectly wise in how He loves us and what He brings to our life. Paul says it this way, that in all that He's doing, He works out everything according to the purpose of His will. And that right there, that's our greatest hope. That's our great. No matter what other people try to do, no matter how lost we may feel, no matter how broken we become, it's God's purposes that prevail. Not my purposes, not my wants, not my desires, not my expectations. It's what God purposes that's going to prevail. It didn't matter how bad Herod wanted the infant Jesus dead. God's purpose prevailed. Amen? No matter how painful it was for Jesus to lose one of his closest friends and family members, John, at the beginning of his ministry, it was God's purpose that prevailed. No matter how many people stopped following Jesus because of his teachings and they were too hard for them, it was God's purposes that prevailed. No matter how many people wanted to see Jesus dead at the beginning of his ministry, much less the worst, it was God's purpose that prevailed. No matter how many of Jesus' friends at the very end would betray him, it's God's purposes that prevailed. And no matter how disappointed people were, when the supposed Messiah came riding in on a donkey, it was God's purposes that prevailed. God has no plan B. This is the plan. His plan led Jesus to Jerusalem on today's road to be killed. His plan is for you to be here this morning, to read Matthew 21, to evaluate your own expectations. His plan is for Jesus to transform the lives of those who will fully embrace him and follow him. That's his plan. You see, our road trip and Jesus' road trip, they cross paths this morning. And while we will continue ours next week, one more, we're going to be talking about heaven, the road we're all going to, the greatest topic I could talk about, great way to end. While we go there next week, Jesus' ends right here. His will end. He reached his final destination. He comes riding in on a donkey through the city gates of Jerusalem. And in the opening scene of Matthew 21, the thing we just read, there's so many things happening, isn't there? I mean, so we barely graze the surface of what's really happening here. We have two crowds from different regions taking in this person of Jesus, both reacting to his kingship and his divinity in different ways. We have expectations flying all over the place about what the Messiah should look like, about what a king should look like, about what the Savior should look like, what he came to do. Expectations all over the place. And then you have us reading it today, reading the reactions of these crowds 2,000 years later, recognizing that we hold our own expectations as well. Expectations that we hold over ourselves, expectations we hold over Jesus, and those need to be reevaluated. 
And then in the middle of all of that, you have Jesus, completely resolute, fully calculated, putting things into place and into motion so that God's purposes will prevail. And he knows exactly why he came into Jerusalem. He already told us, Matthew 16, I'll be arrested, I'll be beaten, tortured, crucified, killed, and buried. And all of that will happen because Jesus was too good for this world. He was too good. Because he loved this world too much that he couldn't not do it. Because he cared for you so deeply. So I want to give you an invitation to a choice that you have this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 30, it says that God sets before each of us a choice of life or a choice of death, a choice of blessing or a choice of cursing. And he's urging us to choose life. So my question, do you and will you choose to trust what Jesus says about you this morning and what Jesus did for you this morning instead of holding on to a comparison and an expectation determining your value and your worth off of that? I mean, think about what Paul said in Romans. He says that while we were still sinning, Jesus died for us. He didn't die for what we could be. He died for who you are and what you'll never be. Jesus didn't march into Jerusalem that morning with the expectation that you would be perfect. He marched into Jerusalem that morning because he knew you never would be. And today I have full confidence that, he, that, that God has led you to this building with these people to hear this message because he wants to invade your rebellious soul with his, with his abounding grace. He wants to show you that he died for you just as much as he died for me, just as much as he died for everybody else in this room. He did it for you too. Will you say yes to Jesus this morning? Will you give the coat off your back for Jesus this morning? Will you drop your expectation and your comparison that you've put on your life and pick up what Jesus says about you and said, will you say yes? Here's what I want to, I want to give you a guarantee this morning. Immediately after the service, and I'm, I'm almost done, during the song, I'm going to walk through those doors. I'm going to go to the Founders Hall, separate building over there. We do a thing called coffee with the preacher. Immediately after, you come talk to them. But here's what I want to give you a guarantee. If you're here this morning and you said, you know what, I'm tired. I'm tired of being crowd number two. I'm tired of questioning what Jesus is doing in my life and in the world. I'm tired of holding on to my comparison. I want to give it all to Jesus, the coat off my back. I want to say yes, I want to take a next step. If that's you this morning and you want to take a next step, you don't know what it looks like. You don't know what that step is. Here's what I want to guarantee. You come talk to me this morning. We're going to find a next step. Something, anything. We're going to find whatever it is, whichever direction you need to go, we're going to find it for you this morning if you'll come talk to me. I won't leave this building until we find a next step for you. That's my guarantee. Will you say yes to Jesus this morning? Will you stop comparing your life and your value and your worth off of other people in this world. Let's stand. Let's say a prayer. Before I do, 
I'm going to go ahead and release the kiddos. Y'all have listened to me talk <laughs> this whole time, so now we're going to offer a space where you can hear Jesus on your own level, and our people will listen to you. You listen to me, we'll listen to you. So if you're a kiddo, age five to fifth grade, we do this every Sunday. You can head on back to kids' church. I'm going to say a prayer to close us out. During the song, I'm going to head over to the Founders Hall. Let's talk about your, your acceptance and your next step with Jesus. Let's pray before we sing. God, we give it all to you. Whatever it is you needed us to hear, whoever it is you need us to be, God, you, you blew out of the water people's expectations in Matthew 21. Whenever you entered Jerusalem, people were expecting some grandeur king coming in to oppress and kill the people who were oppressing and killing them. And God, you took on a different role, the role of a servant, submitting yourself to the sins that we bring into this world, allowing them to swallow you and to destroy you so that in the end, you would bring life to all of us. And God, we all in this room, we hold on to our own expectations about our value and worth, about who you are and how you're working in this world. And God, we pray that we will just leave those at your feet. If we learned anything on this road, it's that the reality is hard to accept, but it's so much better than an expectation that we're holding over our life and over you. Jesus, we fully submit to you. We give you the coats off our back anything else that we hold dearly to. And Jesus, we are, we are constantly and earnestly pursuing our next step with you to submit that life to you fully. In Jesus' name, we say this prayer. Amen.